Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. As we approach the end of the year, what factors should investors consider as we settle into a late cycle? A late cycle typically indicates that growth remains positive but slowing. So what factors tend to outperform during this period? ETF strategist Etienne Yonkas Pouchard speaks to Catherine Black, Director of Sales Enablement, about which factors tend to generate alpha in a late cycle. He suggests when making your decisions, you should consider what will pay off next year rather than the next few months. Etienne says he's attracted to high quality and low volatility. Specifically, the team tends to favor quality as low volatility stocks are generally reasonably expensive. Besides late cycle factors, Etienne also discusses the bond market, his overall thoughts on fixed income, and the advantages of Fidelity all-in-one portfolios. This podcast was recorded on October 28, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Etienne, welcome and thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So Etienne, to kick things off, as we expected, there was another rate hike on Wednesday. Any comments on that and how that impacts where we are in the business cycle? Yeah, absolutely. I think that was a, a little bit of a surprise, to be honest. Not the fact that we actually had a rate hike, but uh, to the, the the size of the hike itself, which was a 0.50 move in the overnight lending rate. But markets were actually anticipating, uh, you know, if you look either a survey of economists or if you look at like overnight index swaps or so looking at kind of what the market's pricing in, if you will, we were looking at anything between 0.75 to 1%. So the actual move of 0.5 by the Bank of Canada actually brought some relief to the bond market with the curve shifting, I think immediately after the announcement, about 25 basis points, almost across the whole tenor of of the curve, and then kind of, you know, slowing down a little bit throughout the day. But all, all in all, it was somewhat of a uh, a positive news, albeit that it's still obviously increasing lending rates for consumers and for, for businesses looking to finance themselves. Uh, we now find ourselves at a place where there's pretty much only another 50 basis points that's priced in for, for the Bank of Canada going into about April of next year, at which point we're actually anticipating, you know, rates to either, you know, stop going up or potentially even come down into the later parts of 2023. So actually quite a, I guess, positive development for markets, maybe on the flip side of that, though, maybe not so good for the outlook on on the greater economy from the Bank of Canada, basically hinting at that things will eventually slow down and that this inflation will kind of make its way through the economy, put pressure on on business margins and basically indicating we, we are in a late cycle and potentially heading for some type of growth contraction. I don't want to say the R word too often in the in the presentation, but, you know, a recession is definitely a possibility in the next you know, 12 to 18 months, and, and nobody really knows exactly what that's going to look like, but definitely does seem like that that's kind of where we're headed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and even as the title of the show is indicating uh, factors for the late cycle, <clears throat> maybe we can touch on that in the sense that with our ETFs, we are factor-based 
during this late cycle and as we are seeing growth slow, you know, what factors tend to outperform um, or continue to generate alpha? What are you seeing? Yeah, where we find ourselves right now in the late cycle and, and you know, potentially, once again, kind of in that transition to, to a potential session environment, the factors that really stand out are quality and low volatility to us. Because if you want to take a position now, you're not looking at, you know, specifically what's going to do the best currently, but what's likely going to do the best in the next, say, 12 months. So a few key themes that uh, I guess reasons why we see that or we've seen that historically, first of all, quality tends to look at earning stability or uh, profit margins. And in this environment, you know, you, you want to get that low vol aspect of earnings because we've seen, you know, companies reporting, especially on the, on the growth side and more recently, some of the big tech names, some undershoots and on, on the earnings side, on the revenue side, costs going up. You know, those are things that are really indicative of, of some type of slowdown for those businesses. And we're seeing that to a broader extent where earnings expectations for growth are still relatively stable, but we're actually starting to see a lot more revisions downwards. And those two factors are actually the ones that have the lowest uh, negative revisions so far year to date. Whereas if you look at small caps, for example, value, uh, which is, you know, cyclically oriented a little bit more, you've seen a bit more downside there. So those two factors, you know, historically have done well. And we can actually dive into the numbers and see that when, for example, economic activity as measured by, say, an ISM survey, uh, when we find ourselves in a, in a, I guess, not necessarily a contraction in business activity, but a slowdown where the way that to, to understand this, this data is when you're above 50, that means, you know, for example, manufacturing in, in the U.S. or in Canada is expanding. And when it's below 50, it's contracting. But really what's important is the trajectory that we're in, because right now we still remain above 50. So we're expanding, albeit at a, at a slowing pace. So the two, uh, I guess, are the, the four cells here that are important are those, you know, above 50 and falling and then below 50 and falling in which, as you can see, you know, both of those factors have historically done quite well. I guess last thing I'll add to that, you know, why we actually favor quality a little bit more is the fact that low volatility stocks are actually fairly expensive. So to buy defense right now costs a lot. So to, and, and, and if you think of that factor, some of the sectors that are overweight, staples, uh, you know, telecoms in the comm services, those are stocks that get selected. You also see things like utilities. You're paying a hefty premium relative to the broad market to, to own that. So not to say that it's not going to work, but you definitely are you know, buying it at a, at a fairly uh, high valuation compared to quality stocks, which are significantly lower than they were to start the year, given the fact they were already trading in a premium. Got it. So both great factors for this point of the business cycle, but quality obviously a bit more attractive from a pricing perspective. Yeah, awesome. So let's pivot a bit to fixed income. You know, yields are now ahead of forward inflation expectations. And I think advisors on the call would be curious to know your thoughts on bonds because they are looking a bit more attractive right now. So if you could touch on that. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a extremely difficult year for bond investors. And, you know, speaking to advisors across the country, because a lot of my role entails that I'm meeting with advisors and kind of talking about portfolio structure opportunities in the ETF space. And what we found is that it's been extremely tough on the risk averse investors, right? So those that are heavily invested in fixed income and had never really, uh, you know, felt a double digit negative return, something that's been quite unique, because whether you were in in tips, whether you were in an aggregate bond type product, you're in short term bonds, everything's been down this year. There hasn't really been a place to hide other than like the US dollar, pretty much. So if you look at the rear view mirror, it doesn't really feel like a, you know, it's, it's not a good feeling to be buying bonds because of what's happened. But bonds are significantly different than, than, than equities where 
you know, you have a bond. If the price has gone down by, say, 10, 15%, if you think that that company or the government that's issued that bond is going to stay solvent until the end of the maturity, you will get that money back. So there is much more math that entails to it. So when you have a bad re rearview mirror, it necessarily makes, you know, looking forward better. Now, uh, I don't know if that's, you know, a good way to, 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 to put it, but, you know, if you look at yields where we are currently, it is much more attractive. So at the end of the kind of like last recessionary period up until now, so basically looking at a 13, 14 year window, the yields that we can find for pretty much every sector in the bond space, you're going to run a decade high, if you will. So if you look at, for example, the U.S. aggregate bond index is yielding around 4.75% as of the end of the quarter, as of the end of September, and it's actually a little bit higher now already. Uh, that's the 100th percentile. So you've never, you haven't gotten paid this much to own bonds since 2009. If you look at, for example, high yield, it's at the 93rd percentile, albeit spreads remain kind of in that neutral range at around five and a half, six. Um, if you think about March 2020, they were closer to 10%, which was, you know, a historically good buying opportunity on credit there. But right now, the thing is, is even if you do see some widening in credit spreads, you're getting compensated enough to offset a lot of the, you know, capital losses, if you will. So the opportunity is getting better and better. And the reality is it's it, there hasn't been an opportunity to trigger losses in a very long time. So from a fiscal standpoint, to kind of reset, start fresh and give investors, uh, you know, to find the solutions, if you will, that can position investors to recoup that money faster, I think is going to be crucial going into the year. Because one of the biggest risks, I think, as we go into the end of the year and statements start coming out, once again, this is just feedback we're receiving from advisors is, you know, GICs, for example, are going to be a big demand from investors. And uh, if you go back looking at periods in which GICs outperform bonds in a given year, there hasn't been any the year after. Like GICs have never outperformed bonds two years in a row. So it's it's to kind of try to avoid that by saying, let's rebalance the bonds. Let's, you know, either uh, invest some cash that's maybe on the sidelines. But it really does seem like it's a great opportunity, albeit there's still, you know, interest rate hikes to come. The reality mm -hmm. is, as long as those expectations don't get worse, right? So like, for example, I think looking at inflation numbers is much more important than looking at where or when central banks are going to hike, because that's going to adjust the number of hikes that are being priced in. So right, right now in the US, for example, you've got another 1.75% going from 3.25 on the Fed funds rate to 5%. Unless it, markets expect it to go further than that, your curve is pretty much going to say to the structure that it is, where eventually it's going to come down as the short end kind of falls. So you have some type of steepening happening, which is generally a good place to be for bond investing. So okay. I know long-winded answer there. to say the bonds are attractive. Yeah. 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 So lots there. So just to unpack that a little bit, what I'm hearing, you know, GICs, great short-term opportunity that we know investors are clamoring about, um, excited about, but perhaps in the two and further year out, not as attractive as a potential reset now potentially looking at what the bond market has to offer just from a yield perspective. Like that's crazy that in 13 years, we really haven't seen the same type of opportunity. So a lot of opportunity there. I think there's a lot of discussion that can be had. Um, and I know you're always available to talk to advisors as well um, as to how you can assist and how they can reposition yep. their portfolio to capitalize on that. So that's excellent. You know, we've talked uh, a bit about obviously the fixed income space here and uh, a big question that our advisors get you know, challenged with is do you buy an index or do you hire an active manager at this point? So, you know, there's two sides to every coin, but curious to get your thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so there's, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer here. It really depends on what you're trying to achieve. And, you know, when you're thinking about an environment where there's more and more opportunities, having a, you know, a talented management team will allow you to take, to, it, they will take advantage of those opportunities quicker. Whereas an index is by nature dependent on what's being issued in the market and dependent on, you know, past emissions and basically creating uh, a replica, if you will, of the great bond in uh, universe. You can't really buy all the bonds out there. Some just don't trade. Uh, you're trying to copy that index based on the duration risk, the credit risk, and kind of reformulating it. So you're not necessarily able to go out of benchmark and find great, you know, tactical opportunities. And with bond prices where they are now, where, you know, if you look at, you know, any index, basically you're trading at around the low 90s, if not the mid 80s in terms of average bond price, thinking that the new, like the, the, the maturity average price would be 100, right? So you've got a good leeway of capital gains that are, that are there. A good active manager is able to go out and try to take advantage of those opportunities and they can do it in a more timely way where they can go in and out and trade those positions. That's like the number one thing, whereas that your manager will be working for you to, 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 to get advantage of those opportunities. There's a few other points also. Uh, when you think about it, bonds are simply less liquid than equities. Uh, they're traded over the counter. There is more friction when trading them. So having uh, a, you know an active manager, you can actually uh, you know alleviate some of those issues by managing various portions of the book, right? Where you're, for example, liquidating cash instead of having to sell the entire portfolio when they're when there is volatility and things like that. So it's a, it's a good way to manage liquidity and make sure that the portfolio is less risky. You know, those are some of the key points. Uh, you know, the last one I'd say is that you can manage credit and interest rate risk instead of having, you know, if you look at the Canadian bond market, it's about 75% government bonds with a duration of seven and a half. Is that exactly what you want right now? I mean, you, you, could, you could argue that if you feel that the, you know, the curve will shift down and you, you want more duration. But all in all, generally speaking, we can go out and get more yield than the broad benchmark because we're more nimble. Completely fair. And I think also, um, you know, a silver lining to all of this is that it's taking the workload off of the advisor <coughs> and it's really um, giving it to Fidelity or, you know, another active manager of that sort and letting them take that research and do that mm -hmm. work for them, which is always a benefit because time is of the essence these days for everyone. So we've talked a bit about equities. We've talked a bit about bonds. Now, what if someone doesn't want to take on building their own individual portfolio of ETFs? Do we have a one-ticket solution that's available to advisors that they can leverage to really simplify their practice? And as I just mentioned, you know, maybe divert that work to someone else. Yeah, absolutely. That's what, that's what we've been working on for four years on the ETF team now is, uh, you know, to have enough building blocks, enough tools that we can eventually package all that together for our advisors in uh, for those that want simplicity, right? Because you're always going to have, uh, you know, managers or portfolio managers that are more active and want to be making tactical calls on certain factors, certain regions, certain, you know, mark, like market cap sizes, like should I add small caps, et cetera. You know, we've also found that there's a lot of advisors now that just want simplicity and want this core type holding where, for example, we're talking about quality and low vol. That's great for the late cycle uh, uh, and recession period. But when you go to the early cycle, you should be rotating that to like a factor like small caps or value. So the idea around that, once again, is just simplify. Uh, we have four options available. Um, the idea is to combine, you know, our equity factors on, on, the, on, the, on, or on the equity side, uh, pair that with some of our best fixed income solutions, add a little bit of a, a small crypto allocation, one to three percent, depending on the risk rating of the portfolios. As for the question on small caps, that is not currently an asset class that we have exposure to. 
our factor ETFs generally are mid to large cap stocks. So that's something I think, you know, we can consider uh, going forward because this is kind of a flexible uh, mandate in which if we feel that an asset class can add value in the long term, we can incorporate it in the future. Currently, it's not part of the uh, of the solutions. Um, but, you know, just kind of give a bit more background on these products, strategically managed, strategically diversified. That means we're rebalancing on a systematic schedule. We do have risk controls in place, obviously. So any deviation of 5% on, you know, either equities or bonds to either side, we're going to rebalance. Um, but the, the name of the game here is to try and capture, uh, and first of all, differentiate us from what's available in the marketplace. So whether you look at uh, competitors like Vanguard, iShares, BMO, and others, uh, the ones that are really kind of that have been in that category for a while, they're doing pretty much the same thing. So obviously, given we weren't first movers, uh, it was important for us to offer something that's a little bit different, uh, we think is more sophisticated, and to capture the long-term strategic alpha we can generate with factors. Because whether you look at low volatility, which is about a 1.1% average annualized alpha over 25 and 35 years, to value, which is 2.6% annualized alpha going back all the way to 1985. We want to capture that in a, in a, you know, in a strategic way. We don't want to tactically move among them. Just say we invest with this in mind for each region, Canada, US, and international, and we want to capture that. So let's say we can make on average 1.82% gross of fees on equities, a little bit more on bonds. You know, this should be a product that that's going to do really well on a relative basis while offering at the same time, the same type of volatility profile. Yeah, and I do think we need to address uh, another differentiator. As you mentioned, crypto um, is in our all-in-one ETFs because it is a very, very small position, but the rationale behind that allocation and you know the impact that that's had. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, I mean, definitely from uh, the impact that's had on the portfolio, not been a good year for cryptocurrencies, but uh, as we'll see shortly, I think we're going to highlight performance. It's It's been more than covered off, if you will, by the equity component, but it's an asset class that we've done a lot of research on. And, you know, I'm sure many of you have heard from, from my colleague, Megan Chen, who's our digital asset strategist. And, you know, that asset class, uh, which is cryptocurrencies in general, is something that's continually evolving, but has some really rich technology applications that we, that we you know, we do believe in here at Fidelity. And if you look at, you know, where, where we've hired people over the past year, a lot of them actually are in that digital asset space. Uh, so so we, do, uh, we do see that as part of the future. And now on top of that, obviously, why why in this portfolio is we've done uh, some research on to what would be a, a good allocation of, for example, Bitcoin, which has been kind of the, which is the largest cryptocurrency and kind of the more stable one over the past you know, 10 years, call it. What we found is by adding one to three percent, dependent on the allocation to bonds and equities, we're actually able to increase the sharp ratio. So albeit we're adding volatility to the portfolio, the extra amount of returns it can provide actually continue, you know, benefits. Adding more than that would actually be a detriment to risk-adjusted returns. So we're doing it in a very controlled way. And uh, we're making sure that, you know, this is something that your investors can get access to with like in a very simple way. Also in a way that is not always the center of attention. Uh, that's also something that we've heard from, from a lot of advisors because we did launch, you know, the Bitcoin ETF in order to incorporate it. And for a lot of advisors that have, you know, been requested uh, to add Bitcoin, say, you know, I want a little bit of Bitcoin in my portfolio. What ends up happening is it's always a topic of discussion, right? So if it's down 40, 50%, like it is this year, it's, I want to get rid of all my crypto. I don't understand it. You know, blah, blah, blah. It becomes once again, focus. 
If it's up 30%, it's why don't we have more? Let's add more. And it's always that line because regardless of the size, the percentage change that they see in their statements is always extremely high because of mm -hmm. its volatility. So this is a way to kind of package that benefit from it, but not necessarily have it always out there. And this is more of a practice management thing that I'm talking about. It's not necessarily an investment strategy. It's literally just to make your lives easier as advisors. So yeah, thought I'd add that in there. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. Um, you'd already mentioned one of our largest competitors, uh, or I guess actually just firms in the space. So Vanguard has obviously uh, been around a very long time, uh, specifically in the multi-asset ETF space. But the all-in-ones have had pretty good performance, actually, in comparison that, you know, it's just bringing it back to that active versus passive debate. I think it'd just be interesting for the advisors on the line to just understand the impact of the all-in-ones and really how the construction um, and mm. how we built these have benefited our and investors um, through this volatility and through the current environment that we're in. So, yeah, you know, the idea here is not to, once again, it's not to, to, to literally point at one at, at a competitor. That's not the idea. It's to highlight that our approach, which is vastly different from the passive approach, right? So we have system, you know, factor-based equities, active fixed income, very different. It's going to cost you about an extra 15, 20 basis points from a fee perspective. And we're not being tactical here. It's not because we made a, a good call. It's not because we went overweight value or we went underweight international or you know whatever it may be. It's literally the same asset mix with different components. And we're much more concentrated. So we're trying to screen out some undesirable names on the equity side. Because even if you have four factors and you say, okay, momentum, value, low vol, quality, they're four different factors. So, okay, well, should that not pick stocks that if you put them all together, you get the index? No, you still get much more concentrated. So we're picking out of a thousand stocks. And let's say for the US, we end up with maybe a total of 250, 300 holdings instead of a thousand. So we're screening out a lot of companies and making sure that you're getting exposure to the various styles that are very complementary also. So we're extremely happy with this so far. I mean, obviously it's it's only been uh, a year and a half, but we're we're very excited by this by this product that we've created, which is kind of a once again unique in the space uh, because of the resemblance of all the others. For sure, they're definitely unique, and like you said, more to come. I think we're all really excited to see um, what the evolution too of the all-in-ones looks like. When buying discounted bonds, are you anticipating the central bank will reduce interest rates, thus restoring prices well before maturity? So any comments on that? So, so that's a great point, right? So let's say you take, um, you know, we've got a fund, uh, our Global Core Plus uh, bond ETF uh, that's also available in a fund that's managed by Jeff Moore and Michael Plage. They maybe got about a 3% coupon. So there's about a 4% capital gain that's embedded in there uh, when you look at it. But that's considering, one, you hold it, you know, out to, to the maturities. So if you lock it in right now, and you can kind of make that calculation that if the curve does not move, more or less, you can expect in the next five years, you're going to make about a 35% cumulative return. Kind of the simple math behind it. Now, the timing of those returns, nobody really knows. You could see a little bit of a shift to the upside. Maybe you get a bit more volatility. Yield goes up a little bit. But when you look at it over a longer time frame, that's pretty much what you should be getting. That being said, that's the curve flat it, or not moving. If the curve begins to shift as we get some type of a pivot from central banks, you will get that money faster. That 35% may come in two years instead of five years, but it can also come in six years, right? But if you mm -hmm. look at it kind of in that benchmark way, it just makes you really excited about bonds. Like there's a good, good opportunity there to rebalance, uh, right? Mm -hmm. And if you think about I guess to give you a bit of perspective on, on fidelity and, you know, I, I'm on the ETF side, obviously, but, you know, I do keep track of what our global asset allocation team's doing and they're, they're closer to a neutral mix in their mandates, 
whether it's the managed portfolios or the private investment pools, and they've been in a very long time, uh, which historically have been overweight. And anyway, since I've been at Fidelity, uh, they were overweight equities. So I think it's very telling of how we're trying to maybe rebalance and reposition towards a bit more fixed income. But yeah, that, that's a good question. I, it can be faster, but it could be a little bit longer, right? If like a, we get another bad inflation reading, but all in all, the probabilities of a positive outcome in the next 12 to 18 months is very good. It's exciting, right? I, I'm with you. I don't think I've seen any point in time where we've been at such a neutral mix um, on a distribution of fixed income within, like you said, our GAA portfolios. So uh, a great opportunity there. Um, thank you, Etienne, for joining us today. This was a great conversation. Really appreciate you being here. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.